This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Hi, I'm Chris Judd, and this is Talk Your Book, and today we're lucky to be joined by macro guru Scott Rundell from uh, from Mutual Limited. Scott, thanks very much for, for coming back on the show. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. So plenty going on. Now, important to note, we're talking today before the RBA's rate decision. So we'll put that in the caveat when we ask about it later on. But I thought to get straight into the, the, the guts of the conversation, the US banking crisis. How are you viewing that? And do you view it, it to be over as yet? Uh, I think what we saw with Silicon Valley Bank was, wasn't a systemic problem. It was basically a, an idiosyncratic problem within that bank. I mean, it was a big bank in a, in a, in a, a sense, the US banking system. but. It took in a lot of deposits and invested heavily into fixed rate securities, so duration risk, and didn't hedge it. So obviously when the Fed started hiking interest rates to deal with inflation, it really didn't do anything. And if you read the, the, the headlines and the stories, they didn't have a risk manager for 12 months. So really poor risk management. Customers got wind of that, pull their money out, had to sell a lot at a massive loss, and, and the rest is history. So very idiosyncratic, but some other banks were dragged into the, the mire with them. Um, we saw the Fed pretty aggressive, or the Fed and other US regulators and authorities aggressive in backstopping depositors. And, and for the most part, it has eased concern. We've seen stock markets up again. We've seen credit spreads tighten again. Bond yields have stayed a bit lower. So there is sort of that underlying uh, concern. So I think the banking system is okay, but there is some regulatory fragilities that need to be dealt with. And we saw the Fed's balance sheet increase throughout that time. We saw some new programs implemented, the BTFP, and obviously the discount window was accessed mm -hmm. by some of those banks. There's a bit of debate online whether that was QE, that increase to, mm -hmm. to the Fed's central bank balance sheet, or if it was uh, not QE. Uh, what was your view on it? Um, I think it was, again, another sign by the regulators and the government's uh, agencies to, to backstop the banking system. I don't think it was uh, designed as giving the banks liquidity to go out and lend. Yeah. Um, and if you look at some of the other measures that determine credit availability in the US economy, uh, the Fed's uh, senior lending officer survey, I think I got that right, has been tightening lending standards. And that was a January. So I can't imagine with the banking situation now that they are loosening credit standards. So I'd say it was a stopgap move to put some confidence back in the system, stop the run on banks, stop the contagion effect from other regional banks. Um, and in time, they'll, they'll pull it back out again in some form or manner. I think the QT program of letting bonds roll off will continue. It was just a, a mechanism to calm nerves. And so far, it seems to have worked. I think there's a huge spend down in the Treasury General account too. I think a measure of sort of 500 billion bucks over that period. And that, that is a huge pump, amount of liquidity pumped into the system. But it looks like credit availability broadly out of the US banking system is about to get incredibly hard. And it, it feels, you know, from a long way away, there's a bit of a liquidity crunch coming. Is that how you're viewing it? Um, maybe not a liquidity crunch. I think in other terms, a credit crunch. Credit crunch, uh, yeah. fair enough. Um, and yeah, you're right. I think uh, the previous survey I mentioned, I think just one in two banks in America are tightening their lending standards and also increasing their credit spreads on lending. So. Within that environment, that does not signal loose financial conditions. That's definitely, we see some storms ahead. 
recessionary headwinds. I mean, obviously the curve is inverted, which typically tells of uh, recession risk. Um, so the banks are being very, very cautious and I think really tightening their lending standards going forward. And we saw one of the things that brought down uh, Silicon Valley Bank was deposit uh, customers taking their money out and putting in money market funds where the yield was much greater. Mm -hmm. Until the Fed really crunches yields at the front end, that, that gap still exists and the money's still leaving those deposit accounts for money market funds. Do you think it's inevitable that gap uh, invariably tightens even more or, or is this going to keep happening? Um, I think uh, increasing with those sort of funds, they're becoming quite uh, sophisticated. Uh, you can access your funds through apps on your phones and the like. So, uh, and they are investing in underlying strong security, typically short-term securities. So the duration risk is minimal. Um, I think with the flow of capital, flow of deposits out of banks into mutual funds that we've seen is probably the the bottom of the iceberg. I think going forward, we see less and less. Probably the lazy depositors, maybe less sophisticated depositors, might stay where they are, or move it from uh, ABC Bank in California to JP Morgan or something like that. So, I think also the U.S. banking system is quite archaic in a relative sense to what we're experienced or what we know here. Um, as we're talking earlier off camera, we have there's 4,200 banks in, in, in America, and uh, the top 40 of those banks account for 94% of assets. So. That's 4,000 banks with 6% of system assets, not overly sophisticated, very simple. Um, so I can't imagine their products are that great either. So I think that continual movement is likely, um, and, but banks will eventually have to increase their deposit rates to try and retain some of that. And what do you think the gold price has been telling us throughout this crisis? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I think gold price has definitely been moving in line with inflation risk. Um, and we've seen with EM2 balances increasing over time, especially through the start of the pandemic, um, the gold price has risen with it. Now, whether that's because of uh, gold price or gold safe haven asset, or whether it's because of inflationary pressure, et cetera, et cetera, is a debatable point. Um, we saw last year um, the M2 start to come off as the Fed started to withdraw stimulus from the system. And coincidentally, we saw gold price sort of fall, say 15 to 16% between March and September. We saw a lot of um, bets in the market around a Fed dovish pivot. Um, and we saw the, the, the risk assets get excited and think, oh, the, the, the Fed's going to, to, to swing it around. Um, we saw gold price come off. And each time the Fed's come out and said, no, we're fighting inflation, quite hawkish speak. And we saw bond yields move up accordingly. And then we saw gold price. Um, so thematically, it's moved broadly in line with them too. And then in more recent months, we've obviously had some systemic shocks which seen as gain a bit of a bid on safe haven status. So it's moving around a fair bit on that sort of uh, global risk dynamic more than anything else. And it feels like there's a lot in the news currently about the US dollar potentially re losing its reserve mm -hmm. currency status. We've had meetings, uh, you know, there's been people from politicians from India, from Brazil, China, Russia, mm -hmm. all speaking about how the time has come for USD yep. to no longer be the world's reserve currency. Do you think I mean, at 87% of the world's transactions, I, I don't know what the alternative is, but do you think that's the more important question? Or do you think the more important question is if the US treasuries are still the world's reserve asset? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think all great currency regimes or safe haven assets or currency reserve scenarios through time come to an end. I think I, I read somewhere that the average is about 100 years. Um, so by on that measure, we're halfway through uh, with the US sort of kicking or probably two thirds of the way through, I should say. Um, so 
yes, it's plausible at some point in time. And you mentioned the bricks, um, and they are probably sick and tired of being you know, dealt with against the US dollar. Now, China and Russia together make two pretty big, uh, strong economy, uh, economies, governments, and so on. So I think it is inevitable at some point that treasuries or the US dollar will lose its status. But here and now, you have to ask, what's the alternative? Um, you need those BRIC nations to come to an agreement on what that currency is. Is it the one or something else? And I really don't see them agreeing too easily on, on what that measure is. So for the time being, it's the US dollar is the currency reserve and as uh, treasury is the safe haven asset um, until there's a better replacement. And I just, it's very hard to identify what that is. And so to flesh that out a bit, I mean, sovereigns own US treasury so that if their current currency dives, they can still afford to buy yep. commodities which are priced in USD. Mm -hmm. Could you see a world where they just take out that intermediary process of only the USTs and just stockpile the commodities directly? Like when we look at car companies across the world, particularly those linked to EV, we've seen Ford now buying lithium mines, yep. Telstra being linked to, linked to nickel and lithium mines themselves in their supply chain because they realise the underlying value, not necessarily the price they've got to pay, but mm. the value that, that those supply chains lead for their, their entire company. Could sovereigns move away from USTs and just store the, the hard asset themselves they need, and then they don't have to take that risk of being sanctioned by the US down the track? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a very interesting point. Um, it's the ultimate vertical integration, isn't it? Sort of buying it from the source. And China have been doing it since 2013. They haven't been buying US bonds. No. They have actually been buying mines in the Congo or yep. other places around the world. So in a way, Perhaps it's already started. I would say, uh, slightly cynically, I think China doing that is probably to create resource efficiency. Um, should they don't go down the path of potentially moving across the Taiwan Straits, um, knowing that they're going to be sanctioned on certain products, um, sort of going off. That's the... but it does speak to the vulnerability of USTs as well, doesn't it? Does, it? That it does. No countries don't know when they're going to fall foul of the the US and and what's. Uh, important to them at any time. And most countries at some period in the history have had a falling out with the US yes. at some level. Yep. I think what happened to Russia's bond reserves could be, a t could, we could look back at that in 10, 15, 20 years time as a turning point for when sovereigns no longer view the UST as a risk-free asset for a whole number of reasons. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, it's, a, it's definitely a possibility and, and it is plausible to consider the, those eventualities, um, especially with China getting bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger. Um, and it's, it's, it's a difficult one to call. Yeah. Um, I think the key element of the conversation is we're in for a more volatile, volatile environment going forward uh, because of the geopolitical situation. Uh, Russia and China sort of both have their own agenda. Um, America is sort of, I guess, shrinking in a global um, presence, at least physically which started with the Obama administration and obviously Trump pulled the troops back a lot more. So uh, that's creating a power vacuum, which could extend through to reserve currencies and reserve um, uh, fixed income assets and the like. In terms of commercial real estate in the US and private equity, you know, I think most people view the, the major US banks as being really well capitalized and this scenario being very different to the GFC. Mm -hmm. but. A lot of people identify commercial real estate, which is largely largely financed by the regional banks, mm -hmm. uh, and private equity, which still has huge mark-to-market write-downs coming, yep. as perhaps the next shoes to drop that, that do have a systemic risk in the States. Do you think that's something worth keeping an eye on for, for Australian investors? I think so, definitely. Um, I mean, your commercial property, uh, if you just pull it back to local experiences in the banks in Australia through time, 
residential mortgages has been a very, very safe asset class uh, or lending class, I should say, you know, loss rates of two basis points over the last 30, 40 years. And if you look at times when the major banks especially have had periods of elevated impairments, let's talk 92, 93, it's been largely commercial property mm. um, because of just the general dynamics. And a lot of those property, uh, those assets are reliant upon the growing economy and so on and so forth. So um, on a broader spectrum, yes, definitely in the US, um, if you're tightening lending standards, you're not necessarily going to lend into sectors that potentially are at risk, especially a leveraged sector, especially when interest rates are going up and the economy is slowing. So therefore, a lot of those dynamics would suggest that, yes, it's going to be harder to refinance deals. Because so you don't get the 25 years you do in no. Australia or the 30 years for, for US home loans, do you? It's sort of every five years you've got to get those loans generally refinanced for commercial property. Correct, correct. So yeah, it is a challenging environment. Um, and again, you're rising interest rates off virtually nothing uh, to threes, fours, five percent. Um, doesn't sound like much in the historical context, but there's a lot more leverage in the system now than there was, say, 10, 15 years ago in most economies. And when we look at Aussie rates, we've obviously got the RBA meeting at, at 2.30 today in, in a, um, an hour or two's time. What, what do you think is going to happen there and what's the consensus view currently? Starting with the consensus, um, I think most people surveyed by various uh, news agencies are indicating a pause. Um, if you look at the four major banks, uh, they're split. Two are calling for a pause, two are calling for a 25 basis point hikes. Um, I think there is an excuse, if I could use that term, for the RBA to pause. Um, obviously the banking system uh, issues very much US-centric, and that was who had Credit Suisse, which again was a circumstances of its own making, uh, given uh, years of poor management and poor decision making. Um, so that created a lot of volatility in asset classes. We saw a plunge in yields off the back of that. So there is this sort of uneasy, fragile calm. So they could say, well, we just want to see how that pans out. Whereas the Fed, the ECB and other central banks around the world have largely ignored the bank situation and stuck with their inflation fighting agenda. So does the RBA follow that course? Um, the smart money or the pundits in the street are leaning more towards no pause. And I think one of the dynamics influencing that decision potentially is now we are seeing inflation come off, retail spending is coming off, consumer confidence is, is a bit weaker, house prices have flawed potentially, um, is that mortgage cliff that's coming sort of mm. kicking off from May, May onwards when we start seeing those fixed rate mortgages that everyone's talked about coming off. Now, there's tens of billions of dollars of loans there that uh, all of a sudden households are going to have a pretty significant jump in their mortgage payments. That will have the influence of, of impacting aggregate demand. So it seems like a good time to pause. So let's pause and let's see how the economy uh, goes through that period. And you mentioned Aussie house prices. Mm -hmm. You've, um, you called it well last time you were on. What are you seeing there? It looked like Sydney house prices actually jumped up a little bit last month, which felt a little bit uh, surprising. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the various dynamics in the housing market, uh, immigration is back. Yeah. Um, we have low interest rates by historical standards still, um, albeit your borrowing capacity has come off a lot. Um, but I think some of the key elements here are building approvals are, are, are declining, or they're volatile, but generally there's a lot less being done. 
Uh, and we're seeing less sellers. So mm. I can't remember the exact number, but I'm, let's say 25, 20 to 25% less supply into the market. And the rental market sounds like it's incredibly Correct. tight as well. So the rental, yields are, the rental yields are going up, vacancies are coming down. So those dynamics do support a soft floor, if you will, in house prices. So by my numbers, it's off about 10% from peak. Um, a lot of uh, pundits were sort of predicting a, a 15, 20% downside. Um, not saying it won't get there, but I think unemployment's still low. Um, we still have, uh, we're growing, albeit moderately. Um, and I think it, there is a lot of untapped wealth. Everyone talks about the, the bank of mum and dad. If you look at the pool of mortgages or houses out there, no, two thirds of households have a property, one third don't one third own their house outright. So there's a lot of capital there potentially to be de deployed back into the market. But the core element is very little supply and no real stress selling that we can see. So that's the main, I think, support for house prices. If my kids are watching this in a few years time, I want them to know that the <laughs> bank of mum and dad's tightening lending standards and uh, don't ask. But yeah. uh, mate, that's a brilliant summary. Thank you. Uh, appreciate you coming back on and always love getting your view. So thanks very much, Scott. Thanks for having me. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan, who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest.